We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast from Tasmania that brings you big ideas about science, technology, engineering and maths. We're proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station, so go to edgeradio.org.au for more information about the good things that they're doing. This week we're taking a little bit of a different tact and um, I, Neve Chapman, will be interviewing one of our long-term co-hosts, Mibu Fisher, as she decides to move back from Tasmania to Queensland but still stay connected with the show. But it's a really nice opportunity for us to delve in further into Mibu's work. As we begin today's episode, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa and Pakana people as we record on Nutruwita, and also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So, Mibu, you are a marine ethno-ecologist, which we're going to talk more about what that means, and Indigenous woman in STEM. So, Mibu, you work at CSIRO, the really prominent science organisation in the country, and you have done for quite some time, but I've always kind of wondered, like, how did you find yourself interested in pursuing science? How did you end up connected with CSIRO? And what's encouraged you to, like, stay with them for so long and the work you're passionate about? I guess starting with how I got interested in science and marine science in particular, that kind of goes back to growing up around a family who spent a lot of time in the bush or on the water or at the beach and just always having like that affinity and connection with oceans and seas and, and water bodies in general. Um, and then it was when I did biology in high school, we did a camp and we went down to, I can't remember the name of the town, but somewhere on the New South Wales um, far north coast. And we did snorkeling and we did beach surveys. And then we also collected seawater and looked at it under a microscope and that was the first time I'd really done that and when we were doing that we saw this little zooplankton of some kind and the people who were were showing us were kind of excited because they couldn't identify it and they said it could possibly be a new species and that kind of made me realize oh there's so much we still don't know about the ocean yeah right that's so cool yeah uh, but I didn't actually think you could have a career in marine science. Oh, really? Yeah, I actually had applied to go to university to do human services and justice, which is totally different. Yeah, a little bit different to what you do now. Just slightly different. Um, and then my mum took me to a family member who said, why are you doing human services and justice? Like, you obviously love the ocean and being at the beach and, and all those things. And her advice to me was, don't study something you think you should, study something you want to learn about. And so I changed my preferences that day, which was the last day that they were due. (laughs) And then I found myself, yeah, doing a degree in marine science. That's really good advice. (laughs) Yeah. How did you find that whole experience at university, like navigating, pursuing science, in that university setup, like I know when I started science, I found it really intimidating at first, but I also really enjoyed the subject itself. And how do you feel like your love for marine science was fostered in those early formative years? 
I think it was really intimidating as well. I was lucky enough to live on campus um, in another state from, from where I grew up. But I think being around my peers who also were on the same journey as me and also were intimidated by like our amazing professors and lecturers and, and teaching assistants and just having that shared experience of growth in the sense of us as people and growth as in our knowledge expanding whilst doing a degree in science. I still really struggled for like probably the whole degree in thinking, why am I doing this? Like, it's interesting, but I feel like it's like, am I good enough the, the whole time? Like that was, it was just always in the background. And I, I don't know if I ever overcame it whilst I was still at university. Yeah, so what happened from like being at university like what encouraged you to stick with it and like how did you end up with CSIRO? I was working to support myself to go to university and that was a struggle because they kept putting me on shifts when I had lectures or had to be in the field and um, my my degree was quite hands-on so we had a lot of camps and and day trips and things like that um, which was really lucky because I spoke to other friends doing environmental science at other universities and they hadn't even been in a lab yet and so yeah it was amazing the fact that I would be out counting whales or doing you know different identifications of various rocks and things like that but it was because of my work and yeah struggling to fit that around my class schedule it was brought to my attention that this thing called a cadetship existed and the CSIRO were looking particularly for Indigenous cadets and as I identify as an Indigenous woman, uh, I applied and I, I got an interview. I was absolutely terrified <laughs> going in to the building. Um, so I was actually really lucky in that the CSIRO at the time was located five minutes from my parents' house. Um, <laughs> so I'd actually driven past the CSIRO pretty much my whole life uh, and it always just seemed like I didn't really know what happened there it, it was just an enigma almost to me yeah so going in there for an interview sitting in front of a panel of people as a coming up to being a second year student at university I was just like oh my gosh like am I going to be able to answer these questions I don't understand yeah, that would have been super intimidating yeah it was but somehow, <laughs> I, um, I guess, was successful and got the cadetship. And that, that was really helpful because it meant that CSIRO would pay for me to study at university and I didn't have to work anymore. But part of the cadetship also allowed me to have 12 weeks work experience at the end of every year. And that was full-time work. So being an undergraduate student doing three months full-time work for CSIRO was amazing. It opened up my eyes to to what an actual position looked like after university, which before that, it it didn't didn't seem real. I, I felt like that's something that you don't really get told when you're going through university like you're doing this a degree that you don't come out as a nurse or, or something like that. It's kind of a bit vague and you have to go and find where you fit in. Mm. Um, so yeah, joining those dots is really hard. Yeah. And I was lucky enough that 
the, the dots kind of You say appeared. you were lucky enough, but you took chances to like push yourself outside your comfort zone and apply for those things and Yeah, yeah. I think I I think taking up opportunities, like saying yes to any opportunity when you are young and, and things aren't really set in stone in your life yet you don't have any responsibilities is is really useful for making connections and seeing what you like and trying different things um, when you're you know starting out yeah awesome so stick with us and we'll be talking more to maybe about the type of work that she does at CSIRO You are listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking with Twix co-host, an Indigenous woman in STEM, Mibu Fisher. So, Mibu, I just think your career is fascinating, and we haven't actually talked yet about what a marine ethnologist is. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do, like what your area <laughs> of interest is, and maybe a project you're working on at the moment? Yeah, so that's a common question I get. <laughs> what, what is it that I do? But what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it can be quite difficult to explain that. Um, but I just kind of made up the term marine ethnoecologist because I couldn't think of anything that already existed that I felt that I resonated with. And so ethno or ethnology is like the study of different cultures. And then I trained as a marine ecologist and I kind of put the two together, like different how different cultures view the marine environment, how they've managed it, and how that impacts with our ecology. And it just happened to be in the marine environment, marine ethnoecologist. Yeah, um, cool. So what are some of the types of things that you work on? So I've had a really varied career. I've been lucky enough to work on a number of different areas within marine science. And it's only been in the past few years that my my true interest, interest has started to... Uh, peak or or become apparent to me and it's it's really amusing because as an Aboriginal woman I didn't want to get pigeonholed into doing Indigenous related science but it's actually what I connect with the most and so what I kind of do is I try and figure out ways to empower or enable communities and by communities I mean Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities within Australia or other First Nations or traditional peoples around the world. Empower them so that they are in a decision-making position about their country because the practices and the knowledge that they have gathered and, and learnt has been a scientific process over a very long period of time and it's not really acknowledged as a science system and that's because western science is so so big and stuck in its ways and it's very yeah it's, it's very slow to change things but it's also because the majority of the world views the world from from that perspective where they they view the world kind of as human centric there's like we're at the top it might be a triangle with you know, us controlling things underneath, whereas an Indigenous worldview is, is separate and it's more holistic and you can see everything, kind of how, how it all connects together and, and humans are a part of the system um, rather than controlling it. And being able to answer really important questions around our, our climate and our, and our world, I don't think, can be appropriately answered without 
using different knowledge bases and so being able to incorporate Indigenous science and knowledge into the marine science realm I find really interesting. Yeah, how have you gone with the process of like navigating those two systems? Like you're, you're early in your career um, and I think Western science as a whole is starting to realise the importance of like multidisciplinary research and working with people with other viewpoints and that we've seen it a lot with like for example bushfire management mm-hmm. that indigenous knowledge is really coming to the fore there and thinking innovatively about how to do that and actually that's because there's a lot of evidence behind what they do that's been passed down through generations yeah how have you gone about advocating for that in the marine science space um without feeling like you know you're advocating for your own identity for example like what are some of the challenges yeah. and experiences you've had it's a really hard journey because it is so personal It's a very personal journey and it can be difficult sometimes to look at things objectively, I guess. But I think having that passion and that personal connection is important when it comes to advocating for the rights and the the use of traditional knowledge and, and saying, like, when you said that it's with the bushfires, there's evidence for it. The evidence also is more accepted because the Western science has decided, oh, that is that evidence, we've validated it. And it's like that's kind of a part of the argument is you don't – why does Western science have to validate Indigenous science? Because that's kind of implying that Western science is better and that's not necessarily true. So having like – it's kind of like philosophical discussions with senior management – or senior researchers can be quite intimidating, um, <laughs> especially when it is personal sometimes. It's just something that you have to do and get used to and not have a thick skin because I find when you show people that there's like actual human connection and, and reasons, I find that they're a bit more pliable into changing their mindset. Mm-hmm. It's like we're asking for a big cultural shift to happen and and those things don't happen overnight and so I'm just thankful for all the people in the past who have paved the way for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to go to university and to to get an education and to advocate that we need identified positions so that we are able to have a platform to have a voice in various spaces Um, and because without them I wouldn't I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be able to try and influence the, the way that we do science and, and various things like marine management and include traditional knowledge in that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because also like what you're trying to do is no small feat because it's the process of senior scientists unlearning what they know and relearning a different viewpoint, which is really hard because in a lot of ways science can be dogmatic you know, my favourite example is in medical research, we're taught randomised control trial. Without that, your evidence doesn't matter. And I really think that we're in an era where methods and technology have moved beyond. Mm-hmm. There's other ways that we can find out how something's effective and if it's effective in actually a real-world setting rather than a super-controlled setting. Yeah. And it sounds like what you're trying to do is be like, we don't need to do your example of an experiment to know that something is worthwhile. Yeah. Exactly. But that's really hard for people to accept. It is very hard. And it and I guess that's why sometimes it's like trying to compare the two and say, you know, what is basically 
science, you know, observations over time. While Indigenous people have observed various things happening in their localised environment. And that's the difference. Like, Indigenous knowledge is very localised it's, and it's really in-depth knowledge about this particular location where they're from. But that observation has occurred for thousands of years and without having a written system, it's been passed down. And it just so happens that it's passed down through art or songs or you know traditional dances and things like that it's just a different expression as opposed to writing and I think people need to start to yeah change it it is challenging to change your view of things when that's been your whole world that's what you've been taught this is how science should be it's in a box it's it's not open Um, yeah that's awesome okay stick with us and in just a moment we're going to delve more into Mibu's work outside of science and her advocacy, but also, you know, maybe tipping a little bit more into how she's advocating for change. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking with one of our co-hosts, team members, Mibu Fisher, and we've been talking about her area of expertise as she gets ready to move back to Queensland. And maybe I really liked that you were talking about, you know, challenging traditional scientific dogma and people's viewpoints. And uh, you're really passionate just generally about, um, you know, what we do, that's what I call science, just challenging what it looks like or means to work in science, technology, engineering, and maths, or just generally the model of success, like what it means to be successful in science. What do you think, like are some of the things that you find most fulfilling either in your career or like in the advocacy work you do? In the work that I do, the, the bits that I find most fulfilling is, so like because I do a lot of engagement work, I, I work with people and I talk to them about their experiences on various marine management, marine science related content and um, seeing their passion for it but also seeing like their aha moments of, oh, my knowledge is useful I can contribute to the benefit of the wider Australian community it's not just about me you know doing my caring for country work it it has a wider impact and seeing people being able to to see where they fit into into a country that's really made it really difficult um, to be an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person yeah, I suppose it's that sense nice. of belonging. Yeah. Yeah. I think something that I've really picked up from you and like our involvement of working together like through Twix is that demonstrating that alternative viewpoints are valid, um, but yeah. that also that sense of self and finding that sense of self and belonging in science is really important that those perspectives are mm. welcome and important for the way that we think. Yeah. And I, I've done a, a fair few, I guess, panels and and speaking events since I was quite young like very early on in my career which didn't really make sense to me at the time because I was like I don't know much I haven't been doing this for very long why do you want to hear from me and it was because generally because people like to show off their representation and at the time I ticked quite a lot of boxes like I was under 20 I was indigenous and I was a woman and <laughs> working in a very male-dominated 
sector, um, which is now kind of, I think, becoming more open to women. Um, but being able to have the opportunity and, and speak and at the beginning not know if it was useful and then go, go to an event one time. Um, I was speaking at the World Science Festival when it was in Brisbane and there was a group of school students from Palm Island and the the museum passed on to me that they'd got feedback from the school and one of the little girls had said, um, I really liked hearing from Mibu because I didn't realise that I could be a marine scientist but now that I've seen that there's another Aboriginal woman in in science, I know I can do that too. And so that was like, that was kind of my validation <laughs> for doing that and taking the time to connect with people and, and go to events and kind of, yeah, I guess it was a nice feeling. <laughs> yeah, but I think, you know, it does take a lot of energy to be that visible role model, but you do it very generously. And um, another area that you're really passionate about is like mental health and working in research. And I think it comes back to that, like you being a champion of the values and the change you want to see within the scientific community. Yeah, I think I think lots of people like, struggle with their mental health and it's hasn't been very visible because like you you kind of always hear about people's good things and like their successes but you don't hear about the mental anguish or the stress or, or the mental load that has gone into that because you know it's it's your it's one aspect of your life and you still have your personal relationships and whatever other hardships or circumstances that everyone uniquely has and how that does impact on your ability to perform at work. And usually people in this space are very passionate and they have very high expectations for themselves. And it is not possible to consistently work at that level for years. For a whole career. For your whole career. You will burn, like get burnt out. I know so many people that have been burnt out um, and I don't think it's encouraged enough to to take the breaks before before you hit the burnout. You need to, yeah, it needs to be encouraged. Yeah, and more holistic. So we're nearly at the end of the, the show and it's been really great to like focus on you and your work as such an important member of our team. But looking back on your like career to date, for a younger person who might be listening or like a younger you who's maybe a bit lost or doesn't really know where they fit, like what kind of advice would you give for pursuing a career that aligns with your values? I think being open to opportunities um, definitely helped me and even opportunities that seemed really odd or left of field were important opportunities to take yeah, so it's it's like I'm saying take opportunities, but you also have to learn to say no. Because um, sometimes you get to a point where you said yes to too many things and you don't have the capacity to actually deliver on all those things. And sometimes you end up in projects where, you, you know, you wish you didn't take it because the project team might not suit your personal ethics or, or various things so I think being really careful 
about accepting different things as like yeah it's kind of a two-sided thing what I'm saying like take the opportunity but also do your research yeah and who that opportunity is with and whether that aligns with your personal goals yeah I think something that I've always that's always uh been striking about you to me is the way that like, I feel like you're quite a values-based person so when you're weighing up whether or not you have capacity to do something it's really about you know how much does that align with my personal values with my career goals yeah and things like that's so, like yes I yes to things particularly as you've got lots of opportunities but mm. as you get busier like you are it's really about coming back to like yeah I can even think of an example this week of that it's like you get a couple of opportunities come you know through your mailbox and it sounds great and then you start reading about what the actual question is or what, what's actually being asked of you and you realize this has come too late especially in a field that I work in like engagement has to come first and often you get the request at the end of the project and it's just like that no like that doesn't align with my beliefs of co-management or co-led projects and co-designed projects um, with communities and so I'm not going to take them because I, I don't think this is being done appropriately so it's like also yeah I constantly have that cultural safety aspect of things when I make a decision and someone else will have a totally different view of what they would say yes or no to because of that particular viewpoint viewpoint yeah yeah I think that's really good advice and something that not a lot of people would say to other people like when you're weighing up opportunities know why you would want to say something to say yes to something and come back to that continually mm-hmm. thanks so much Mibu it's been awesome to interview you and it's also been awesome to have you on the team and I know that you're going to stay part of the team from afar yes. but I'm going to miss you in Tassie I will miss the team it's been I just want to say Twix is awesome. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been awesome to have you on the show. And yeah, if anybody wants to check out Mibu's previous episodes, you can find them on our website. We've even got a search bar where you can just search her name and you'll find them. Um, until next time, it's been a pleasure. Thank you and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.